As we turn in our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, a reminder that you can be involved in greater study of this passage in community with other believers in many of, our, in, in many of the small groups that we've got going on. So if you'd like to be a part, it's not too late to get a part of a small group this spring. Uh, so just sign up in the Friendship Registry, your time and location that works well for you, and we'll get you plugged in right away. Well, uh, we uh, find ourselves in our series that we've entitled Strangers in a Strange Land, a verse-by-verse study out of the book of 1 Peter. And we come to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12 this morning. And over the last uh, few weeks, in fact, uh, probably the last month and a half, we have been uh, reading and studying Peter's exhortation on our job to submit to all different types of authority. And he got pretty specific, uh, dealing with government authorities, dealing with our authorities in the workplace, uh, the authorities within the home. And now he comes and he turns to the churches that he's writing to and he says, I write to you and I, I want to admonish you to submit uh, to each other in many ways because when we serve one another with a brotherly love, when we are tender-hearted and like-minded, we will have a powerful witness to the community around us and we will begin, as uh, Peter will articulate this morning, we'll begin to live the good life that is in Christ. So maybe you came this morning and you're feeling like your life isn't where it needs to be. Well, you can be a little bit more equipped in the pursuit of that good life and the supernatural blessings that can be yours by turning your hearts to this passage this morning. Today we're going to hear not only from Peter, but we're going to hear from also King David because part of Peter's passage this morning is a direct quote from Psalm 34. And the great thing is, is not only are we hearing from two men of old, Peter, an apostle, and the great King David, a man after God's own heart, but let us always be reminded when we open this book, we don't just read the words of men, we read the words of God. And so let us turn our attention this morning to this passage, and let us pray and ask that this word this morning that Peter gives would make us wise into salvation and would be able to help us find the abundant life in Christ. Let's go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. You can find this passage if you don't have a Bible with you on page 1015, page 1015. Let me read this for us this morning. First Peter chapter three, verses eight through 12. The word of the Lord says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for this, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we recognize this morning that you are the holy God. And as we view your holiness has been read this morning, as we get a glimpse, as Isaiah did of your glory and your holiness. And when we see the angels, the cherubim and seraphim, announcing and singing to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. It is the job of every 
Christian in this place to look at our own lives and see our sin. Lord, you have said in your word this morning that we can have the good life. We can see good days. But Lord, the definition of that good life is different than what the world says. And the way of it is a life that is found in you. So Lord, I pray through the teaching of your word this morning, through Peter's words that were directed by the Holy Spirit himself, Lord, that we would pursue the good life, but we would do it your way, and we would pursue your things. So Lord, speak to our hearts this morning. Get rid of the things in our lives that would keep us from this type of life, so that we, Lord, can live such wonderful lives amidst an evil and depraved world that they may see and ask the reason for the hope that we have. We ask for your blessing on the reading and the teaching and the receiving of your word, Lord. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, many of you know, uh, per my absence the last couple weeks, that my family had the opportunity to enjoy some uh, vacation time. And some of you know that we traveled down uh, to Florida and uh, spent uh, some time in the wonderful place called Disney World. And uh, one of the days after uh, a long day of amusement park fun, I was tucking in my four-year-old son, Luke, and, and uh, asking him what he thought of the day. And, and still, with his eyes pretty wide open, he says, Dad... I never want to leave this place. And I said, son, at some point we have to go home. No, we don't, Dad. We can stay here forever. And what that little four-year-old had come to know was that he was living the good life. You know, my boys were all excited. At every point in the day, they would say, well, my friends at school are in math class. And we would look at the Weather Channel, and I, I did some ribbing on Facebook that while you guys were enduring snow, we were enduring 80-degree temperature. It was glorious. And what we learned as a family is that there are some good times in life. And my boys had an absolute blast. And Disney World isn't so much for adults, but what you get as an adult is the joy of watching your kids just faces light up with all of the great things that are going on in places like that. And what Luke's phrase tells me is that there is a hunger inside of each and every one of us for good days, for a good life. And yet, what we learn over and over again is that uh, in this passage, the Bible doesn't say it's wrong to pursue it. It just tells us to pursue it by pursuing the right things. And you see, what happens in, in our life is... What, what will inevitably take place is that we will start to enjoy life and we will elevate the things that bring us that joy instead of elevating God who is to be glorified for those things. You see, in our passage, Peter is going to quote David. And he's going to say, whoever desires to love life and to see good days amidst a passage talking about submission where they've heard over and over again, submit to those governing authorities in your life. Yeah, Peter, I get it. Submit to your boss. Even if he's a jerk, you need to submit and do what he says. Yeah, I get it, Peter. And then the ladies have to hear, oh, you got to submit to your husbands. All right, Peter, we get it. And then the husbands, you got to treat your wives well. you got to love on them. you got to care. Yeah, we get it, Peter. I wonder if the original audience's ears perked up when they heard the phrase, the good life. Yeah, Peter, preach that. 
We've heard enough about submission. Preach about the good life. Tell me how great things can be amidst all of the difficulties that those people were struggling with, all of the persecution. It was now that Peter was speaking their language. Tell me about good things. Speak positively. Preach it, Peter. We're listening. All people, both saved and unsaved, long for good days of life. And one of the wonderful things, one of the great mercies that God gives to all of his creation is the ability to have some semblance of happiness and joy in life. It wasn't too long ago that there was a, a beer commercial that showed a group of guys out fishing, enjoying a beautiful sunset. And they were sitting back and they were popping open beers one after the other. And they said, it can't get any better than this. Well, let me tell you something. As great as Disney World is for a four-year-old, as great as fishing on a lake with your friends, kicking back some beers, may be fun for some. The good life that Peter is talking about is far greater than we would ever ask for or imagine. The abundant life that Jesus gives is greater than what this world has to offer. You see, Peter is reminded that Jesus said that we should not find our joy and our peace and our contentment in the things where rust destroy and moths devour and thieves come to steal and take. But that the good life is when you and I, as the people of God, seek first the kingdom of God. Where we pursue God in his ways. To follow the ways of Christ. Because he's alone the one who can give us life to the fullest. And yet many Christians, many of you here this morning, are not living the abundant Christian life. At best, you're living it adequately. And you wonder why. And one of the first responses I have when I'm unhappy, when I'm disappointed, is to point to God and say, hey, the thing that you're offering, that abundant life that you say we should have, it isn't there. Something's wrong. You, you need to fix it. And Peter reminds us that it isn't what Christ has done and what he is offering to us that's the problem. It's our sin and our selfishness. But what does this life look like? This good life that we're going to talk about, these good days that Peter shares from David, it's a life of peace no matter the trouble around you. It's a life of contentment whether we have plenty or we find ourselves in one. It's a life of hope in the good times and in the bad. It's a mindset that practices the presence of God each and every day, enjoying the grace God gives us every moment of this life, all the while looking to the world that is to come. It's a life of holiness, and it's a life that is not conditioned on our circumstances, but is conditioned on the person and work of Jesus Christ. So our text is going to say how we can have that life, how we can pursue that life this morning. I want to give us uh, a look at this passage this morning under the heading, The Good Life. And I want you to see how this blessed life is found. Number one, it will be found by promoting partnership with other Christians, by pursuing peace when we're wronged, and by practicing purity in an evil world. So let's hammer these things out. The first process, the first way we get to this good life is by promoting partnerships with fellow Christians. 
Now notice in verse 8, Peter changes the subject while speaking specifically to certain groups of people in specific and certain areas and situations of life. He now turns and he says, finally, here, I, I want to close out this section. And he says, finally, all of you. What that means is we all need to be listening. This passage isn't for husbands or for wives or employees or employers. This is for all of us. Finally, all of you. He wants to speak to the issue of the church, the fellowship within the body of Christ, the people whom you are seated with this morning. And what he's going to say is, finally, all of you, the way you live your life must be different than the way that the people interact with one another in the world. The way that we worship together should be different. Our fellowship, our gatherings, our times of uh, interaction with one another should look very different than the dog-eat-dog world that we live in. And this would be of a wonderful response or a wonderful opportunity for the people who were listening and responding to Peter's message because they would come in on the Lord's Day harassed. They would have come in after a hard day of work where people have ostracized them for their faith. And some of you are feeling that this morning, where it's good to be in the house of the Lord, where it's good to be here where, where we no longer have to fight about what we believe in. We no longer have to uh, be the minority, but we have the opportunity to gather with the people of God and worship him and proclaim his name and hear his word taught to us without the fearing of being harassed or mocked. And so what Peter says is when you gather in that day, Make that experience the best that it can be. But sadly, if you've been around the church very long, you know that many times within the church, our gatherings aren't any different than that of the world. That there's backbiting going on. There's devouring. You have gossip in the neighborhood and in the workplace, and there's gossip within the church. You have people that won't uh, uh, speak to you in the workplace and hold grudges against you in your neighborhood or in your family, and you come to church, and the same thing happens. It doesn't take us very long to know that many times within the church, we act no differently than that of the world. That instead of walking into this place and being blessed by the people and our time in this place, we leave more bruised and more broken than we walked in. And this must have been true in Peter's day. Because if it wasn't true, Peter wouldn't have talked about it. We don't address things that aren't true of our circumstances. And Peter says, all right, all of you, there are some things that have to be a part of your life if you're going to enjoy life. And so what do we understand from this? Well, we understand, first of all, for many of you, you know this, but here at Village Bible Church, our first desire, the first thing we want to accomplish is the atmosphere that we have as a body. And in our vision statement, we say Village Bible Church desires to be a family. Now, there's a reason why we put that in there. It wasn't that we wanted to simply be a group of people. We wanted to see that group of people who come from all different places and in all different circumstances to gather into this place and be a family. And yet I will tell you that that idea and that commitment in ministry is a detriment to our growth. Do you know that many people come into this place and they're not looking for a church that, that has that type of commitment to one another? They're not looking for that. I, I spoke recently to a person that uh, visited our church for a while and then made a decision to uh, no longer stay. And I asked just, just very casually, what, what, what was one of the reasons? What, why, why were you leaving? 
And the response was, we want to be anonymous in the church. We don't want everybody into our business. We want to come and go, and, and that's not what you guys are about. You're all about getting more involved and more into the lives of people. And we're just, we're not there. And sadly, far too many American believers are like that. Far too few of us want to be actively involved with the people of God. Not so that you can be a part of some community organization, but so that we can be a part of a family because that is what we are. The elders didn't come up with that idea. We are told that we are the family of God by the scriptures themselves. And to be a family, to be a group of people who love one another, it's going to require more of us. It's going to retire time and attention. It's going to mean that I'm going to be a part of this body, no matter how I may be feeling on any given day, because there are people who are counting on me. Do you recognize that this morning, that you are here and you need to be here because people are relying on you? They need your encouragement. They need your admonition to live the holy life. They need a shoulder to cry on and someone to walk through their dark days. People are depending on you. I'm depending on you to play your part. And this is what Peter's getting at. The church, if it's going to have any opportunity to serve God in this world, then it needs to be a people who love one another and show that love. And how do we show that love? Notice he says, in attitudes in attitudes that will revolutionize our relationships. Now notice in the text, he gives five attitudes that we need to have. Unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. These are attitudes. And when we live out these attitudes, it will change the way we relate to one another. But to have this, we need to first of all see that we must be united in our mind. Notice he says this unity of mind means that you and I are partners. We don't just sit by one another because we enjoy the same spot in the sanctuary. We are gathered in this place to serve with one another. And how do we serve with one another? By helping one another become fully mature in Christ. Therefore, I need you and you need me. We are partners. We cannot live this Christian life on our own. And so what Peter says is, you guys got to be of one mind in this. You've got to have one purpose. Now, Peter's audience would have loved this idea because they were continually on a collision course of being the odd man out, where the whole area of their life and their world were people going a different direction. And so they would come into the church, and what balm to their soul would come when you could gather together and in one voice we could sing and proclaim the goodness of our God. No longer having to fight the uh, uh, conflicted uh, world that was pursuing uh, a different way. But how do we get there? I want you to notice that what Peter is talking about when he speaks of likeness in mind, he's not speaking about uniformity. We're not trying to put you into a mold and make you all the same. But this is unity amidst diversity. Now, the elders are to lead in this. The scriptures make it abundantly clear. But one of the jobs of the church, especially of the elders, is that the elders are to lead and model this unity. And how we do it here at Village Bible Church is we're a team. And we lead the church by consensus. And that means that we gather together and we make decisions. 
And we make decisions not by vote, not by uh, one person or another person leading, uh, if you will, with veto power. But we lead as a group of men who gather together and pray and talk through and seek the wisdom of God. And we make decisions. Making decisions for the best of the body. And then what the church then, the church leadership does is it leads by establishing the doctrine of the church. And so we model this unity by serving one another as elders. And I hope when you look at your elder team that you can say, yeah, I want to model. I want to live out that model. That you don't see Tim and another elder fighting and quarreling over each other. And if there is a fight or quarrel, that they're dealing with it in a biblical and godly way. I hope that you can look at the men that serve as elders here and say they are men that we can imitate their lives as they interact with one another. So it's that united group of men who then brings forth and establishes the doctrine of the church and says here are the things that we are going to agree on. Here are the things that we are uh, going to uh, be willing to hold with a closed fist and these other things we're going to hold with an open hand. These are the things that we believe to be essential, and these things not so essential to the faith. And that way, then, we can lay out a vision. And we lay out a vision that enables us for you and I, all of us, to pull in the same direction for the glory of God. But to do that, I want you to notice something this morning. To have this like-mindedness, turn to Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. Philippians chapter 2. Hold your place in the book of 1 Peter. And Philippians chapter 2 speaks to us about the importance. Paul is praying this for the Philippian church. And he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Well, how do we do it, Paul? Do not do anything out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then it goes through and speaks about the humility of Christ. We need to be a people who love one another by living together in unity. And that's going to lead to the next word, and we'll go through these a little quicker, but the word sympathy. Peter uses the word sympathy. It's a Greek word that is a compound word. In fact, it's a, a two words that have been compounded together. The first word is close association, and the second word there is suffering. Close association to suffering. Sympathy is when I closely associate with one who is suffering. That's the word. That's what Peter is trying to get across. It means that you and I have a fellow feeling. When you are hurting, I am hurting. Paul says in Romans that we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. That is sympathy. It's going to mean a couple things. Number one, it's going to mean that if you and I are going to live out Peter's words, then there has to be close proximity to one another. It means that we've got to put ourselves into each other's shoes. What that means is that when we see each other hurting, our heart bleeds because we put ourselves into the shoes and into the lives 
of those around us. Now, this sympathy will change the way we deal with one another when each of us fall to sin. You see, there's a lack of sympathy when we judge. You see, when someone falls, you see your brother fall or your sister fall to sin, and you're quick to want to judge. How could you do that? I mean, what kind of person does something like that and responds with judgment? And condemnation is a life that does not sympathize, that does not recognize the allure and the power of sin. So instead of beating each other down when we fall to sin, when we find ourselves hurting, we must do our best to understand what Peter is trying to communicate, that we must sympathize with each other. Now this sympathy is going to come, he says, with a brotherly love and a tender love for one another. This tender heart that he speaks of is a Greek word that says that this love comes from the guts. It comes from the, it, literally, the bowels. It's everything. It, it, it affects everything that we do, and it moves us. When, when Jesus looked at the people, he says that he saw a harassed and a hurting people, and he was torn to pieces. The idea is, is that he literally was undone. And when we see one another and we serve one another, it should be done not superficially, but from the heart. You see, Christians can't simply share a same building on a Sunday morning, but we are to live our lives in one another, with one another and strive to show each other love. Now, let's just stop here for a moment and ask the question, is this true of us? Is this really true of us? Or is our casualness to this time and this moment moving us already to what needs to be done in our day. You see, this is where humility, he says, comes into play. Because what it means is that the world has to stop revolving around us. That we are not the only ones that matter. But that God has brought us together for one purpose, that you and I might be the best that we can be in Christ. You and I can't do it on our own. We have to live this out in community together. Now notice, he goes on, and, and I know my first point's a little longer than normal, but stick with me here. We see that there are actions that can ruin relationships. Amidst this admonition is the call not to pursue things that will destroy the church. What are those actions? Well, one thing that you can do as you study the Bible, and what I do is every time I come to a list of things that are in the Bible, of things to do, if they're positive, I'll flip around and say, what are the negative things? And so what happens to a church that is uncompassionate and lives uncaring lives? Well, trouble's going to come. What happens when we're unwilling to live these mindsets and attitudes out? It will then reinforce actions that will go against what God has recorded for us in Scripture. Now, how do we know it? Notice what Peter says. He reminds us of what Jesus says, that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So beware that your tongue is not full of evil and your lips are not full of, de of deceit. One way that you know your heart is doing something wrong is by asking the question, well, what is my mouth saying? So do you have a tender heart towards the people around you? Do you have a brotherly love? Well, let me ask you the question that Peter is asking. Are you speaking well of the people around you or do you gossip? Do you tell lies about each other? Do you break each other down through your words? Are your words words of wholesomeness? Or are they words that bring hurt and pain? And when you have to speak the truth, do you speak it in love? Or you do it so that you can get a pound of flesh out of someone? 
The book of James reminds us that if we can't handle our tongue, then we won't be able to steer the whole ship. And a church that cannot handle its tongue will never, will never do anything of value for God. We'll never be blessed as a people. But you may ask, Tim, what happens when someone wrongs me? What happens when someone hurts me within the church? What am I to do? Notice the second point this morning. It involves pursuing peace when we're wronged. How are we to resolve conflict? He says, all right, finally all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. But what happens, Tim, when that doesn't happen? Peter, what happens when we don't live that way and someone lives contrary to that? Well, Peter says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may inherit or obtain a blessing. Now, this admonition means that Peter understood that within the church, even though you and I are called to live this tender-hearted, brotherly love kind of relationship within the body, that within the church, full of sinners, that we would not always live according to the Scriptures. And so he says, when that happens, this is what you are to do. Now, please notice that there's no disclaimer of any certain offenses. He doesn't say, okay, if someone gossips about you, well, don't revile back. He doesn't say, in the small stuff, let it go, but when it's really big, you pound the heck out of them. He doesn't say that. He uses broad words. Notice in the text, evil, which is speaking of just general wickedness. When someone does a generally wicked thing against you, you're not to retaliate. Notice he speaks of the word reviled or reviling. It means verbal abuse. If someone uses their mouth to hurt you, you're not to respond in kind. So what are we supposed to do? We're to pursue peace. We're to pursue peace. And what this reminds us of, it gives us here, notice in your outlines, a present reminder of evil. When Peter shares this, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. He tells us, please hear me, that what Peter is saying is he's warning us that this church is capable of terrible things in our responses to one another. What he's saying is, is that it is very easy for us to bring great hurt and great pain into the lives of each other. That wars can be started by the smallest of little sparks of the tongue or by some small action. What we need to recognize is what the devil understand, or what uh, Peter understands is that the devil desires nothing more than to bring dissension amongst us as a body. And we've got to be keen to his schemes. We have to recognize that we have a devil who does not want Village Bible Church to be a church of unity, but of disunity. To not be a place of order, but disorder. To not be a place of compassion, but a place of chaos. Paul reminded the Galatian church of this when he said in Galatians 5.15 that if you keep biting and devouring each other, watch out because you will consume each other. And what that means is it starts off really small. Well, so-and-so said something bad about me, and so I respond back, and, and the war gets bigger and bigger, and it involves more and more people. And before you know it, our church is destroyed because of two people. It starts with two people who can't get it together, who can't do what is right. And so notice there's a reminder. There's also a proper response. So what do we do? His words are simple. Don't retaliate. 
Don't repay evil with evil. Well, where did he get this? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42. You know, it's been said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say, don't retaliate. Don't pursue those things. Don't think that it's your opportunity now to make everything right. Someone wrongs you, you forgive them. Someone does something to hurt you, you show them forgiveness. Now, does that mean that we are doormats? No. But it means that suffering is an opportunity more for rejoicing than it is to retaliate. Let me say that again. Our suffering is of a greater opportunity for us to rejoice than it is to retaliate. When was the last, some, some, when was the last time somebody hurt you and you saw it as an opportunity to rejoice? If you're like me, I start putting together the battle plan. Who? They wronged the wrong person. Wait till I get my hands on them. So what do we do when hurts and offenses come our way? We use the scripture, Matthew 18. We've talked about this in recent past. Matthew 18 is to guide us. If someone hurts you or offends you, you go and you show them their faults with the desire to win them over, not to get a pound of flesh out of them, but to show them their error and to win them back to righteousness. And why would we do that? And I'll leave Matthew 18 for you to study on your own. But why would we do that? Notice Peter moves on to the powerful reason that you and I must show mercy. He says, because of this, notice in the text, this is what you were called to. God has called you and I to live at peace with men. But not just to live at peace with men when they do us right, but it says as far as it depends on us that you and I will live at peace with all people. You see, we can't live the abundant Christian life when we're at odds with one another. You and I can't live at peace unless we are quick to show mercy, grace, and forgiveness. Now you say, but Tim, you don't understand how bad I've been hurt. Let me tell you something. Some years ago, Amanda and I were incredibly were greatly wronged by someone in the church. If I shared with you the details of it, you would know when I say that this sin was unforgivable from a human standpoint, you would totally understand why. And so when it happened, I wanted justice. I wanted retaliation. And the time came for me to confront this person and I walked into the office where the meeting was going to take place, ready to let that person have it. And I want to tell you something, they totally deserved it. Oh, they deserved it. And at some point, and I don't know what happened, God gave me a glimpse of Calvary. And as I looked at that individual, I couldn't see the individual that had wronged me. All I could see was myself. And God kept reminding me, what about your sin, Tim? You think this one's bad? How about, how about these that you've done against me? But God, those are different. No, no, they're the same. You have, you have offended me, Tim. You have wronged me, Tim. And you know what I did? I sent my son to Calvary to die for you. I sent my son to show mercy. The reason why we have to forgive within the body of Christ is because God has forgiven us. 
And when you start understanding that you have been forgiven much, you will forgive much. When you understand that you are a sinner in utter need of God's grace and his mercy, or you'd be on your way to hell, you will understand what it means to show grace and mercy when someone offends you just a little. Because think about it, our offenses to one another are small compared to our sinful offenses to a holy God. But God showed us love in this. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. So how much more then should we show mercy and grace? Now the scripture tells us that we are then blessed when we do this and we receive a blessing. Well, what does that mean? Well, this is what I know and understand. That when we don't show mercy and grace in our hour of need, hear me out, you will not receive mercy and grace from your Father in heaven in your hour of need. Let me rewind that again. You don't want to show grace and mercy to that person who has hurt you? And let me tell you something. I can look out and I see people who are at odds with one another. One of the worst things of being an elder is knowing all the garbage that's going on. And so I don't want you to think, well, that's not happening. You better believe it. I can see people in this room who are at odds with one another, who will not forgive one another. And I want to tell you something. You want grace and mercy and you're out of need? Then you better go say sorry to Joe and you better forgive him. Because you're not going to get it from God, the scripture says, until you give it to your fellow brother and sister. This is something we've got to deal with because if we don't, we will destroy the church that God is building here. And you will not live the abundant Christian life. You will not live that good life when we hold things over people's heads. Let me close with one final thing, and that is we've got to practice purity. You want the good life? You want to live a life of abundance? Well, you've got to live pure lives in an evil world. Amidst all of the hurts and pains and struggles that the original readers were enduring, Peter says they could see good days. By practicing purity. Now let me be clear. You will never experience the abundant Christian life. You'll never experience the abundant Christian life when you're playing around with sin. Some of you are blaming God right now because your Christian life isn't all that special. You're blaming the wrong person. Because Jesus came to give us life and to give it in abundance. But we're buying what the thief is selling. And we're taking it in and we think we can play both parts. That we come in on Sunday and live a special life and, 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 and do what we need to just one day out of the week. And then we go back to our old way of living Monday through Saturday. And then we come back and we think this life of schizophrenia will bring forth abundance. Brothers and sisters, it will not. And so what do we need to see happen? Number one, notice that practicing purity begins with the right desire. Notice he says, whoever desires. You don't have to. It's an open invitation. It's not only the special ones, the the, uh, ones that have hit the criteria. He says, whoever, Village Bible Church, whoever desires to love life and see good days, you want it? Let me just ask. Let's see a show of hands. Who wants the good life? Let me see. Because if your arm's not up, something's wrong with you. You've got a problem. I don't want the good life. Are you kidding me? Get some help. We all want to see good days. And as Christians, I know it's our desire to want to live the abundant life. 
Well, where does it begin? It begins by a desire. That word desire there speaks of an emotion that leads to action. Peter is saying if you want it, then you have to position yourself. And some of us say, we want it. Well, let me tell you something. I want to be 50 pounds less on the scale. I want it. My desire, I'm telling you, I want that. But if I don't position myself for that, then I can desire something all I want. Right? Right, it's okay. You can say I can lose 50 pounds. It's okay. But it has to then lead to something. And you see, our desire is, is a pipe dream unless we have a change of the will. And so what Peter is saying is that desire, when he says whoever desires the good life and to see good days, what he's saying is, you know what, Christians, you put that on your uh, bathroom mirror. The good life and the good days, put that up there. And it's, it's taking that old picture when you're 18 and all toned and, and, and 50 pounds lighter than you are now. And, and you say, I want that. That's my goal. That's my desire. Well, when you look at that picture, you can't then go out to the McDonald's right after that and eat 40 things off the dollar menu. You can't do it. But that desire says, I want that, and so now I'm going to build into my life things that are going to bring me to that point. And so what Peter is saying is you put this up there. The good days, you want it, go after it. Pursue it. It's going to move you then in the right direction. Five times we see in this passage the word evil. You've got a decision to make. Are you going to go the way of the good days in Christ, pursuing him, or are you going to pursue evil? That's your decision. All of us have to make that decision. Young, old, rich, poor, Male, female, we have a decision to make. And all of us have that same decision. When we desire to live the good life, are we going to try to live it through the good ways of God or the evil ways of the world? I would be remiss not to read one of my favorite passages, Psalm chapter 1. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Well, what has he done to be so happy? He's gone in a different direction. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. He doesn't go towards evil. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on it he meditates day and night. I want that. I want to be a tree planted by the streams that yield its fruit in season that in all that I do, I prosper. I want that kind of life. Well, put that on your refrigerator and start heading in the right direction. Notice what he says. Whoever desires it, let him keep his tongue from evil. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. The way to the abundant life is walking in purity with your God. Pursue him. And it is when we do that that we are allowed good days ahead. Notice that the evil will find themselves opposed by God. But you and I, when we live in holiness, our prayers are going to be productive. Notice what he says. The ears are open to the prayers. You see, some of us are praying right now, and we're praying that God would do something, and God's ears are turned from us. Why? Because we're involved in evil. 
We're not living the life that God has asked. So, so you want God to prosper you? And one of the ways that God prospers you is that he answers your prayers. And you're saying, well, why isn't he answering my prayers? One of the reasons may be that you're involved in sin. And so get out of the sin. And then in holiness and a contrite heart, give that request to God and see what God will do. We've got to turn our hearts and minds to this passage. Because if we desire for a long and healthy and vibrant, spiritually vibrant Christian life, then we've got to do some things differently. So let me close by reading this passage again to us. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Stop trying to find the good life in what the world offers. Jesus Christ came to give us life and to give us in it in abundance. Let's pray. Father God, we've got some work to do. And Lord, I pray that amidst the gunk in our eyes from a one less hour of sleep, that we would stop and do some real work and business with you. That we would recognize that if we want the abundant Christian life, it begins here with this body of believers. Lord, I pray, I pray that we as an elder team would lead this body well so that the people of God may be thoroughly and fully equipped for every good work. And one of those works is, is that when trouble and strife comes, that the people of God here at Village Bible Church would be able to show love, forgiveness, grace, and mercy to one another. Because, Lord, we know that in the heart of each and every one of us is the opportunity to derail the work you're doing here. And so I pray a special blessing over this place that you would allow us to be like-minded that you would allow us to have a tender heart that lives out brotherly love. That we would be sympathetic to one another and care for one another. That we would involve ourselves with one another. That when someone hurts us, Lord, we wouldn't look to the world, but we would look to your son who gave all things over. He entrusted himself to you who judges justly. Let us do that as well. And Father, I pray that in this world of evil and sin, that you would allow us, you would empower us, that we would be guided by the truth of your word to live lives of purity. Lord, I know in a group this size, there's no doubt that there are some that find themselves dying in sin. Lord, I know it's been a struggle this week for me in some key areas of my life. And Lord, I pray that we would put that phrase to love life and to see good days, that we'd make that the banner of our life and we would make that the impetus for us to live out lives of holiness. Lord, we want the abundant life. We've come to you by faith, pursuing that abundant life. Now give us the strength and the power, the motivation. Give us people who are willing to Give us that gentle and yet loving push.
push to strive to that end. Lord, let us see those good days, but let us see them by pursuing your things. So now, Lord, we're going to leave this place, and we're going to see that the world pursues things very differently. That they long for the good life as well, but they find it in many things that one day will be destroyed. Don't let us be distracted, Lord. Let us keep our eyes on the prize. Let us keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And when we do that, Lord, I pray that we will find victory and we'll find peace in this world of trouble. We love you, Jesus. We love you and thank you for coming and giving us this abundant life. And we give our lives as a sacrifice for it. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.